to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And this week on the show, we're talking all about boobs. Yeah, get ready. Like politics of boobs. Would getting ready for this week entail putting on a bra or taking off a bra, Caroline? I think it would not only entail not putting on a bra, but it would entail taking your shirt off and running through the streets. Whoa! Yeah, that's, I mean, well, that's what I did earlier today. Like, did you notice when I stepped out? Yeah. I was, I thought you were just going to the bathroom. No, no, I made a real quick jaunt around the building just to, just to really get my politics out there. Slash boobs. You just jogged around the building topless? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the construction workers um, had some things to say about it. But. Like, I respect your bodily <laughs> autonomy, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it was really incredible. It, it really let me know that the work of advocates for groups like Femin or Free the Nipple, it's really working. So, listeners, we do highly recommend that for this episode and, and the next episode... Go ahead, take your shirts off, put in your earbuds, or put in your earbuds and take your shirt off, although I think it would be easier to do it <laughs> in the reverse. And step outside. Let your let your nips feel the cool or hot summer air. That's right. Um, perhaps we're not quite there yet, socially, politically, uh, on a society level. So listeners, take those earbuds out. <laughs> put that shirt back on. Get inside. Lock the door. Put your earbuds back in. Yeah. And, and we do apologize for, you know, limiting you in your, in your boob choices. But there's a lot of, of history and, like I said, politics that go into why you maybe do or don't feel free to take that shirt off and, and walk to work topless. Yeah. And the thing that I really came away with in reading about toplessness and breasts, both male and female breasts, is that the more you read about it, the more abstract and kind of ridiculous breasts become. It's like saying the same word over and over yeah. again until it loses its meaning. I felt the exact same way. I mean, we we read a bunch of pop culture stuff, activism stuff, the way that boobs showing them or, or not showing them relates or does not relate to feminism. But we also read a bunch of legal stuff looking at, you know, things relating to obscenity or indecency. And the deeper you read some of those legal cases and, and the implications of of them, the more it does just really seem silly. Yeah, and honestly, throughout this research, too, we were running across lots of images of various breasts. And, you know, when you just start seeing lots and lots of boobs, they really do become less sensational, which is part of, as we'll get into, arguments for why it should possibly be okay for women to take off their tops if they want to. So I have to admit, though, Kristen, that going into these topics, I was a little bit eye-rolly, or boob-rolly, if you will, at the idea of women running around the streets topless saying that this is a huge political issue. Because I was just thinking, guys, there are so much bigger things at stake, bigger political issues, bigger social issues going on in our society right now, like are boobs the thing we want to tackle? But again, when I was reading all of that legal stuff, all of these papers and studies on activists who have made sort of toplessness their thing, 
it becomes very clear that there are bigger issues at play, not just equality in terms of men get to take off shirts, so women should get to take them off, too. There are bigger issues about how we regulate women's bodies. And so I think that does make this a really important issue. Yeah, it's the whole the personal is political, our boobs ourselves (laughs) sort of thinking. And before we look at the legalities and perceptions of female toplessness more in the United States or just in in the West more broadly, we wanted to talk about cultures around the world because, as most of us know, boobs mean different things in different places. And we found a book called The Cultural Encyclopedia of the Breast. Just one. Just one. Only one breast. (laughs) Edited by Meryl D. Smith, who highlights how in Africa, for instance, women's breasts in certain regions are viewed with pride and symbolize fertility and motherhood. And exposed breasts are the norm among indigenous communities, including the San, Himba, and Nama of Namibia. And the same thing goes in East Africa with groups like the Maasai, the Acholi, Nuer, Pokot, Borana, and Rendile. So there are, you know, there are places, as we've all seen in those National Geographic kinds of uh, pictorials, where, yeah, women walking around with their breasts exposed is just women walking around. Yeah, and I don't want to like try to speak for a bunch of people, but I feel like for a bunch of people in the U.S., seeing those pictorials in National Geographic is sort of the first exposure that we get to other people's breasts. I mean, because nobody's walking around, typically, the streets or your house even, with their shirts off. And so seeing these women who are just interacting with their families with no breast covering. It it is as like a little child in America, like, oh, wow, that's like super different. Yeah, because there's no inherent sexualization and there's also no shame, too. Right. Well, except for if you look at Cameroon and their practice of breast ironing, which is just about as horrifying as it sounds. Uh, This is the practice of kneading, developing girls' breasts with hot stones, and moms do it to basically the end goal being to protect their daughters from rape or from just attracting boys in general. The feeling that like once you are developing breasts, that sends a signal that you are sexual or sexually available, and so it's a horrible practice that stems from good intentions on a mom's part. Yeah, I mean, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, but uh, from what I can recall, it's not widely practiced, but it is something, a tradition that still exists in certain areas and in certain groups in that country. And if we move over to China, Before 1927, this was a very specific date, 1927, Chinese women often bound their breasts uh, because revealing one's breasts, and I guess even any hint of cleavage, was considered immoral. Um, But there was also a lot of symbolism uh, inferred in the shape of one's breast. So conical breasts were perceived as a sign of girls' chastity because uh, they implied that they had never been you know, used for breastfeeding. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so they were like fresh, fresh boobs. Conical fresh boobs. Fresh boobs for sale. <laughs> Two for a dollar. <laughs> well, I also thought it was interesting in reading about the breastbinding in China that a lot of times it was considered as a way to erase external sex differences and also any potential sign, external sign of desire. 
Well, and speaking of more breast symbolism, in pre-20th century India, in, in some places, covering your breasts also signified being in a higher caste. Hmm. So women who were in lower caste would walk around with their breasts uncovered often, um, but wealthier women would not reveal them. Interesting class division. Um, it's also interesting to note that in pre-Islamic Indonesia, it, w- it was totally common for women and girls to bear their breasts. And if we move to Australia, native women there in the desert region do paint their breasts and bodies to celebrate fertility, uh, both of their bodies and of the land. Although recently, right, they faced uh, some regulations from Australia who was like, all right, this is indecent and it's exposing families to to boobs, which is terrifying. Keeping on the boob shame. I mean, if anything, the big takeaway from looking at these cross-cultural uh, symbols is that boobs are just kind of complicated anywhere you go. Yeah. Except perhaps in those areas in East Africa where it's completely normalized and accepted and, and desexualized in a way. Right. And and that's that's the big thing that that people, activists, groups like Femin are trying to fight. Um, it's that idea that women's breasts are just purely sexual, that's it, and that they should always be covered. But when it comes to Western culture and fashion, we've not always been as scandalized as we are today by exposed cleavage, and even some nip slips. Yeah, so anybody who, you know, has looked at a painting in the last couple hundred years knows that it was super common at points in the 17th and 18th centuries to feature women, whether they were uh, royalty and super high class ladies at court, or whether they were perhaps lower class women who were maybe actresses or mistresses. With their breasts exposed. And one of those actresses slash mistresses was Nell Gwynn, who in the late 17th century was uh, the mistress of King Charles II, who has been painted in various stages of nip slip. And then if we look at the early 18th century, when deep cleavage was still in vogue, uh, you have people like Emily du Chatelet, who was Voltaire's mistress and an Enlightenment scientist who, side note, helped develop the concept of energy. Not too shabby. Um, and she was into fashion and wore super low-cut gowns and possibly rouged her nipples. Well, you know, it's, if they're going to be out there... You might as well put makeup on them. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what my mom always told me, Caroline. Well, no, literally, no, no, my mother did tell me that. But it was about my face, not so much about my nipples. Those were covered. But if if nipple paint were a thing, mm-hmm. I would just make a whole face on it, you know? <laughs> well, wait, with, like, different colors or still with, like, pinks and reds? Yeah, different colors. Go for it. Sure, clown paint. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and we, should, we should specify that we're not just talking about... You know, uh, we did an episode on the nude, the female nude in art, and that's not exactly what we're talking about. We're not talking about a female mythological figure who symbolizes, you know, absolute chastity necessarily or, you know, vulnerability or maybe she's a goddess. No, we're talking about real women, real live women who were being depicted in art wearing the fashion of the day, which was, oh, here's my, my dress. 
and my lace and all of that good stuff, but it's just super low cut and my rouged nipples are peeking out over the top. Well, it's fascinating to see how in the 18th century, exposed breasts like that. I mean, they're not going around full topless, like you said, um, but almost uh, fully exposed breasts didn't suggest sex, but rather, you said chastity just a second ago, it rather suggested chastity because like the uh, the conical shaped breasts preferred by those early Chinese, um, high pert boobs meant that you hadn't had kids yet. Hmm. And it also signaled high status. Interesting. Which seems like the exact opposite of how we perceive full, mostly exposed breasts today. Yeah, in terms of like the pornified breast. Yeah. Yeah. That it's low class to do that. Well, but when you move on from the relatively nipple-friendly Regency era, uh, you get the Victorian era, which, as we know, was not quite as open to things like boobs or women showing any body part at all, ever. Yeah, I don't think Queen Victoria would have been into nipple rouge. (laughs) No, she would have been horrified. And that really seems like the big turning point, fashion-wise and also uh, cultural morality-wise in terms of accepting women's breasts more on display. But it wasn't just the female breast that was considered a scandalous thing or an inappropriate thing to show off in public. Men were also not allowed to free their nipples for a while, too, until the 20th century. Yeah, men had to kind of put up a fight to have their nipples on display. And they were successful after really not doing all that much. Yeah. I mean, and, and I love this chapter in fashion history and cultural history because it's, it's like, the, oh, men have nipples too. Huh. It hasn't always been this way. But I hadn't thought about that before, of how bare chestedness and public shirtlessness was actually a development. It wasn't just always a thing that guys could take for granted as being acceptable. And pretty much any internet history or timeline of toplessness that you will run across on the internet or elsewhere will say, did you know that it used to be illegal for men to go shirtless in the United States? Which was kind of, sort of true to a point. There were definitely regulations at beaches and at public pools when that started to become more of a thing in the early 20th century um, because people didn't want men wearing super tight swimsuits that conformed to their bodies. Uh, it was requested that guys definitely cover up their nipples and sometimes, too, wear a little skirt over over their shorts because you don't want to see the outline of the penis. Oh my god. Men's own dirty pillows. And it was pretty much until the late 1930s that it was risky for men to go swimming, especially at bigger beaches or pools without their shirts on. So that's why old-timey men's swimsuits are those tank tops that they're kind of like the racerbacks because they tend to cut in, you know, showing as much of the chest as they could without revealing the nipple. Yeah. And so I guess they just got tired of wearing those glorified suspenders as swim as swimming suits over their over their man nips. And so in 1935, you have a bunch of male topless sunbathers and swimmers who got themselves arrested on purpose, of course, in Atlantic City to protest having to cover their nipples up. Yeah, so in 1936, the New York state law finally allows men to be bare-chested 
in public. And it's really interesting, too, on a side note, to see the gendering of how we talk about not wearing a shirt. Because mm-hmm. when I hear topless, I think women. Mm-hmm. But bare-chested is men. Isn't that strange that we have two different words for basically the same thing? Um, but when I went back to Caroline and was looking at the evolution of men going shirtless in public... In the 1930s, like by the time those guys were, you know, getting arrested on purpose so that they could sunbathe or swim without their little man tanks on, there were plenty of guys who were already wearing briefs. Mm-hmm. Like there, uh, Rudolph Valentino, for instance, who was an iconic Hollywood star at the time, would walk around on the beach, you know, in California with just, um, just his very tight briefs on. So it seems like in terms of it being illegal for men to be shirtless is a bit of an overstatement. And all it really took was men just taking their shirts off. And then you have male judges who can empathize and Mm -hmm. be like, oh, okay, well, I guess this isn't such a big deal after all. So then by the 1940s, nobody's wearing a tank top. It's all shorts or tiny little briefs. Right. Um, well, yeah, like you said, I mean, male judges sympathizing with uh, male bathing suit wearers and being like, oh, yeah, your chest isn't sexual. It's just a part of your body. Yeah. And, and we mentioned male judges empathizing and sympathizing because that's going to play a big role when we get into legalities around female toplessness, because... As we all know, this has been a far more debated issue. Um, now, women showing their nipples doesn't really become much of a social conversation until the swinging 60s and wild 70s when those kids are like, I don't need bras and tops. Yeah, hippies, flower crowns. All sorts of great things happening. And so that's when you get the first toplessness laws in New York, which are enacted to bar specifically sidewalk promotions of topless bars, topless waitresses, rather than just women walking around shirtless on a hot day. So it's not so much like we've got to put a law in place to ban topless sunbathing or, you know, women taking their shirts off on their front stoop or whatever. It's like we've got to protect society from topless waitresses. Yeah, because I I doubt there's ever been this. Well, if there had been, we would have read about this because every, you know, article would mention this. But I don't think it's ever really been an issue of women in mass walking around without their shirts on and needing to be told to cover up. Um, but when you look at the legalities today, because I think a lot of people assume that top, toplessness is illegal for women mm-hmm. in the United States, but the, the actual legal framework is a bit more nuanced. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Kristen mentioned how the laws regulating women's toplessness are very nuanced. And I would go so far as to say they're actually pretty muddy because while you have laws saying it's okay to be topless and it's okay to breastfeed, you've got plenty of municipal bylaws that do sort of cloud those rules. Efforts by municipalities to, you know, quote unquote, protect community standards. Yeah. Now, at a state level, only three states 
Indiana, Utah, and Tennessee explicitly ban bare female chests in public. But, like you said, you have these local laws and ordinances that can still crack down on topless ladies who aren't topless on the job, (laughs) i.e. in strip clubs. Um, And fines are usually the most common punishment, but imprisonment can also happen. And, worst case scenario, if people who witness toplessness in public complain and there are minors around, the legalities can possibly crank up to felony charges. I mean, talk about some loaded boobs. Loaded boobs. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that think of the children thing has been huge in terms of arresting and prosecuting women for taking their shirts off. How, it, how quickly that breast goes from being, you know, life-giving when they're baby to being life-ending, apparently, at the, at the mere sight of them when they're, what, four or five? Yeah, yeah. Suddenly it becomes, because, I mean, let's be honest, like because society has made it the breast, I mean, such a sexualized object that is somehow apart from a woman's being and her physical self, then suddenly it does become unsafe for kids to look at it, even though they probably had their faces stuck up to it just a couple of years before. So in a piece that we found over at Yahoo detailing the history of legalities around female toplessness in the United States, the author noted how in Delaware, for instance, women can get arrested if they are exposing their boobs, quote, under circumstances that she knows her conduct will likely cause affront or harm. So basically, if you're running out and just <laughs> flashing your boobs, just trying to cause a ruckus, you and you're in Delaware, you might get arrested. Those are aggressive boobs, ma'am. If you have aggressive areola, you going in. Oh, again, new band name. Aggressive areola? Yeah. That's a good one. We'll make that happen. I also thought it was funny that in Arizona, a woman can be arrested for indecent exposure if she exposes the areola, speaking of the areola, if she exposes it or the nipple of her breast if someone else is present. So God forbid there is another human person near you if you decide to strip down. So you're in a field alone, having a picnic by yourself. You want to get like some, you do, like like you do. You want to get some sun. Mm-hmm. No problem. Totally legal until until the Kool Aid Man busts in. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, you're under arrest. Why does he ruin everything? Everything. And it also gave me a chuckle how in Louisiana, legally speaking, female breast nipples, that's a quote, as opposed to other nipples. Yes, yes. Which are exposed publicly with the intent of arousing sexual desire can land you with three years of jail time for a first-time offense and a $2,500 fine. Louisiana, which is the home of Mardi Gras? Yeah, I don't... I don't understand how that works. I don't understand how that works either, but also this is a good example of what we'll talk about in a second in terms of not taking the the quote-unquote actor's thoughts or opinions about her own breasts into account. Things are only framed, typically when you look at legal stuff, they're only framed from the perspective of what a straight man will think about a woman's boobs. So you're at Mardi Gras, you flash your breasts, you could say your intent is to get them beads. But guy on the street says... Well, I liked what I saw, so your intent was to arouse me. Yeah, exactly. And welcome to The Law, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, this is The Law by Kristen Conger. 
And female toplessness in public is still so taboo that even in places where it is technically legal for you to do that, you might still get fined or arrested anyway. So, for example, in 2005, a woman named Phoenix Feely was wrongly arrested in New York for going topless, despite it being illegal. And she was later awarded, though, $29,000 in damages. But not before she went on a hunger strike, right? She was released from prison on time served after, you know, she, she got, went to prison. Well, I mean, when she was arrested on the street, not like prison, prison, but jail. when she was locked up, yes, okay. jail. During her time there, she went on a hunger strike for, I think it was like six days or something, which really just makes me think like, God, there are people in the world who have the strength of will to not eat for that long. That's really impressive. But she ended up getting released on time served. And then that eventually led to the legal stuff where she was awarded all those damages. Well, and the New York Times reported a couple years ago, I believe, on how a memo was circulated mm-hmm. among New York City cops saying, hey, seriously, summertime's coming. Please do not arrest women who are topless. There are some performance artists who just like do this thing, but don't arrest them because <laughs> we don't want to have to pay 29 more thousand dollars in damages. Right. Yeah. And there there was still some confusion. The article quoted two police officers having a conversation and one was like, yeah, you know, we can't do this. We can't arrest them if their shirts are off. And one other cop was like, well, I thought they had to have body pain. The other guy's like, nope, nope, just stop. Just don't arrest them. Just just keep the handcuffs to yourself. But, I mean, if there is confusion lingering, there is a great resource called Go Topless. They're an organization that advocates for women's right to go topless on the basis of gender equality. And they have a very handy map in case you're a visual learner and need to look at a colored map of the United States. And I'm happy to see here, Caroline, looking at this gotopless.org map, that where we are in Georgia, that state is green, which means... You and I can take our tops off right now without risk of arrest. I am not even going to do that. Although perhaps at risk of uh, awkward silences once we do it (laughs) and a very nervous and uncomfortable producer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, if I can get catcalled outside of this building wearing a T-shirt and jeans... I just don't even want to start to exercise my right to go topless. And and that also has a lot to do with activists who are trying to draw attention to the legality of going topless, that a lot of women do feel endangered. They don't want to be leered at or attacked. And then on the other, the flip side of that, a lot of laws are justified because they're like, we've got to protect women. Yeah, I mean, it's really, once you start digging into... The laws and, and legislation around toplessness, that it starts to make sense why these activists do care about this issue. Because I was the same way you were, Caroline, in terms of wondering whether this really is something worth so much attention. But it says so much about how our bodies are gendered and politicized because a lot of the laws in particularly their application and interpretation by judges, have been so historically sexist for so many reasons. First of all, because men's chests and nipples are the default. Right. And so even even when people argue that we should be able to go topless, because we're basically the same, you have boobs, a man has boobs, our boobs just look a little different, even that is still based 
on the theory that men's chests are the norm. And because women's chests are similar to men's, therefore we should have the right to go topless. So even some lines of advocacy are still based on that idea that the male body is the norm and it's what we should base all of our ideas on. And also, by extension, it's based on the idea that women's bodies, naked bodies, are inherently sexual. Yeah. We cannot be topless and expose our breasts without it being assumed that we are somehow flaunting our bodies, flirting with other people, or inviting sexual comments or activity. Those aggressive breasts again. Those aggressive areolas. Oh, he's screaming at people. (laughs) That's why we wear bras. Just to muscle muscle the sound. (laughs) I grab my boob like I'm comforting it. Stop yelling. But sometimes if it's really quiet, even if you're wearing a bra, you can still hear them. I know. Inequality. Um, and then along the lines of this whole idea of like sexualizing the female body, using the male body as the norm, we already mentioned the idea that people aren't taking it legally. People don't tend to take into account the woman's intention behind being without a shirt or a bra. It's always, like you said, considered flaunting. And so we're always thinking about what the impact on a heterosexual man is. And because heterosexual dudes love boobs, that means that boobs are always sexual. And so that a woman is always going against community sensibilities if she takes her shirt off. Think of the children. Yeah. And and so it's this environment of women being held legally responsible for other people's thoughts and actions, Mm -hmm. which is something that comes up a lot of time, too, in victim-blaming culture of, you know, if sexual assault happens, the question isn't, well, what was going on with this perpetrator? It was, well, what was the victim wearing? Oh, my gosh, if she were topless, then there would be no sympathy in a way. Right. No, I was I was pretty astounded at at drawing those connections in the papers we read, talking about the legal issues behind this type of activism or even this type of just, hey, women getting arrested for being without a shirt on their own front porch. Uh, Just astounded at the idea of, well, no, you are legally responsible for how a man reacts to you. Well, and and if you start reading to the judges commentaries in a lot of these cases, especially older cases, I think that things have probably gotten a little bit more progressive. But for instance, um, a Canadian judge in 1991 um, upheld an indecency conviction and fine of a woman sitting topless on her friend's front porch. And in explaining his decision, he said, quote, it's clear to me that the female breast constitutes a very personal and responsive part of the female anatomy and is part of the female body that is sexually stimulating to me, both by sight and touch, and is not, therefore, a part of the body that ought to be flagrantly exposed to public view. And that statement right there really sums up all of the reasons why a lot of these laws are sexist. Yeah, again, using the word astounding, that because he literally says because it's sexually stimulating to me. He went as far as to say to me, not just like, oh, it's potentially sexually stimulating to a swath of people in the country. No, he specifically said that it was sexually stimulating to him 
and whatever her intentions were, just screw it. Who cares? And I'm sure there are lots of guys with nipples out there who would also attest to them being very personal and responsive parts of their anatomy. Guys with nipples? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But we're only kind of, I mean, we're only willing to think of women's breasts as being the sexual chest. Men's chests are just neutral. Yeah, and this was something that Rena and Glazer analyzed in her legal paper, Women's Body Image and the Law. And and one thing that she highlights is how female toplessness in private settings, private commercial settings, such as strip clubs, are totally fine. If we're paying to see them, then that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And in talking about that, um, she says, this maintains an inequality, reinforcing a dual image of women, the good girls versus the bad girls, the Madonnas versus the whores. And she also went on to talk about how, like, are we so uh, uncomfortable with just merely the idea of a desexualized breast, too? Is that what we can't wrap our head around? Like, are we more comfortable with naked female breasts in the context of a strip club more so than seeing them on a sidewalk. And what does that say about us? Yeah, we're okay with a boob on stage. We can throw dollar bills at them. Yeah. But the minute that that woman steps outside in the same topless state, then she's breaking the law or or not breaking the law, but that she's an affront to people's sensibilities. Yeah, she's endangering the community. Yeah, which doesn't say very much about Anyone. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say very much about what we think about men and their instincts or women and their ability to govern their own bodies. Well, and, the, and it's not just men either. I mean, there are women. We talk about this all the time. Women police each other's bodies mm-hmm. all the time as well. So this cuts across society and culture. And aside from confronting these sexist legal systems, Glazer also talks about how one upside of desexualizing or just normalizing the female breast is that it might make us feel a little better about our bodies. Yeah, this is absolutely like you and I talk about normalizing things all the time on the podcast about representation of whatever it is that we're talking about, because the more you see something, the more normal it is, the more acceptable it is to you. And I think this is definitely true with women seeing other women's bodies. You know, we talk about body image as it relates to women in magazines, women in movies, women online that you see, and you're, we're constantly confronted with these quote-unquote perfect bodies. We never get to see people who look like us. We never get to see, you know, a saggy breast or or a small one or some a breast that's large naturally and, and how that looks and how that feels. And so I know that Rena Glazer pointed out how... Sort of amazing it might be if women were allowed to exist in a way that their breasts weren't constantly sexualized and that you could interact with each other and see each other's bodies and know that, hey, it's okay to look different. Everybody does look different. So instead of like women having like stitching bitches where they hang out and make things and drink wine, do we need to have a nip and nosh where we, you know... <laughs> Look at each other's boobs and eat eat snacks. Well, didn't she? Didn't Glazer talk about or quoted some women who one day just all jumped in the lake, t- 
topless. It was hot outside. They all jumped in the water and they were like, oh my God, you look that way. You look that way. I look this way. We're all normal. Well, speaking of that though, Caroline, I've been to saunas with girlfriends and <laughs> the thing is though, I, I, I confront my own prudery whenever it happens because we'll take off our, our clothes, obviously, but I do the really intense eye contact, you know, like I, I'm only looking at, only looking at your face. I'm not going to look directly at your breasts. And I, I feel half of it is just, I think me being a little up, Height etiquette wise of like, I don't want to make you uncomfortable sure. by looking at your boobs. Um, but it's, it's a funny thing to do. It hasn't necessarily, I haven't done it enough that I feel necessarily comfortable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would definitely do the same thing. Maintain super intense eye contact. Like, hello, I'm definitely interacting with your eyes and not anything else. But I mean, that I think does speak to our culture of boobs not being normal. Yeah. Boobs are not normal. You're not supposed to look at them. You have them yourself, but don't look at those either. Well, I think it's it's a culture, culture where we're supposed to be embarrassed if our boobs are exposed. And so by not looking at directly at your boobs, if you're sitting across from me, I am signaling, you know, that, oh, well, I don't want you to feel even more embarrassed mm-hmm. if I am drawing more attention to them with my eye laser beams that I'm shooting out straight to your nips. <laughs> Rouged? R- Rouged, I hope. Well, there is a group of radical feminists who are t- taking the nausea nip like 50 steps farther and using toplessness to protest. They're really, I mean, their boobs are as aggressive as they come. Yeah, yeah. So Femin doesn't just protest the idea of having to keep your breasts covered. They are using their toplessness to protest all sorts of things, including legalized prostitution, uh, repressive regimes, both in Russia or in the Middle East, um, religious institutions and the Pope. They, they protest Nazis in France. And speaking of aggressive, Ina Shevchenko, who's the leader of Femin's Paris branch and training center, specified to a vice reporter that this is aggressive nudity. In case there was any doubt in your mind about women going topless and getting in Nazis' faces, it's it's meant to be aggressive. It is meant to attract the cameras. People are always going to just kind of freak out at the sight of a group of topless women, especially if they've painted their bodies with all sorts of slogans and they're screaming about, you know, bringing down Nazis and things like that. And so they're using that male voyeurism to their advantage. Yeah, and they get a ton of press coverage anytime they protest because it's still, I mean, it's really radical to go out and protest topless in the way that they do. Now, not all feminists are down with their tactics. Uh, They've come under scrutiny for their presentation, possibly still sexualizing their own bodies, um, but also because of their anti-sex worker stance. I mean, they really so much aren't about freeing the nipple, I think, is just like taking down these uh, kinds of cultural and and societal institutions or government institutions, religious institutions that they consider to be 
repressive against women. This is about far more than Instagram not shutting down your account right. if you uh, take a nipple selfie. Yeah, and I I hope it will be interesting to listeners when we do contrast those two approaches because in our next episode we're going to talk about the free the nipple movement which has a lot to do with social media and has gotten the support of several celebrities who have gotten their stuff taken off of Instagram and things like that because of a nipple flash here or there. Well, and now it's time to hear from listeners. We do want to hear your thoughts about toplessness because this is something I think everyone does have some kind of opinion on. Like, do you think that it should be fine for women to go topless if they want to? Do you think that these kinds of laws or arrests are problematic in what they say about body politics and gender? Send us your thoughts. And maybe not your nipple selfies. <laughs> Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at Mom Stuff Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages that don't have to do with nipples right now. So I have a letter here from Brandon about our podcast a while back on bisexual erasure. And he writes, I'm a 37-year-old married bisexual male, also married to a 29-year-old bisexual woman, and have to say you guys pretty much nailed the topic right on the head. However, I did take issue with a segment where you discussed House of Cards. It's one of my favorite shows, and I think they absolutely nail male bisexuality. Although you guys seem to catch yourselves as you were doing it, I still found your impression of Frank Underwood's sexuality a bit insulting. To me, he seems very clearly bisexual, and he does not use his sexuality as power moves, how you described it. He clearly enjoys sex with women and men, and in the sex scenes with women, both Claire and the female reporter, Frank is clearly enjoying himself. It's not just a means to an end. And you seem to make it seem that Frank was only with Claire because they're a power couple, but I don't see it that way. They both love each other in their weird way, and Claire knows about and is accepting of Frank's sexuality, and that's freaking awesome. Also, you guys completely missed how his sexuality is part of the show, or better put, not a part of the show. His sexuality is just part of who he is, just how a normal person's sexuality just is. He was in love with a man he had an affair with in college and still looks back on that nostalgically, but now he loves Claire. He's not conflicted, not in the closet gay, and I think it's one of the best portrayals of male bisexuality in media I've ever seen. And you guys just glossed over it as Frank's a power broker and uses his sexuality as a means to an end. Instead, he's a power broker who will stop at nothing to achieve what he wants. More power, but his sexuality is something completely separate and also completely healthy, in my opinion. Just wanted to let you guys know. So thanks, Brandon, for that insight. Yeah, major House of Cards fan there. Um, well, I have a letter here from Hallie. She says, I love the podcast and I have a podcast suggestion based on something I've been thinking about for a little while. I've recently been having a conversation in my head about being a progressive, pro-choice, pro-LGBTQ rights feminist who also really, really enjoys typical, quote-unquote, domestic women's work. I am a 22-year-old woman and in a serious relationship with a lovely man who recently bought a house. I graduated from a progressive liberal arts college and sometimes felt out of place because although I shared many of the same political views as my peers, my interests were different. I've always loved cooking and loved the idea of cooking for my family or partner. 
I enjoy gardening and am a seamstress. I even like doing laundry. I find it pleasant. Hallie, I love doing laundry too. It's okay. She goes on to say, and I like being in a long-term relationship. I wouldn't like these things, of course, if I were expected to or forced to do them. I feel appreciated for doing them. I enjoy putting in the effort to take care of myself and my partner in these ways because he returns that effort and care in his own ways. I sometimes feel like I'm seen as regressive, and that really bothers me. I was wondering if y'all have any resources for feminist writings that talk about being domestic by choice. By the way, I'm not only domestic, I am a multidimensional human being who has a job and has been a rock climber since age 15. I want to be able to defend all of my choices as feminist ones because I believe that they are just that. Well, Hallie, I have to say that I love laundry, too, and I don't think it makes me a bad feminist. No, it just means you have clean clothes. It means I love the instant gratification of taking a pile of dirty things, putting them through the wash, and then coming out and folding them, and then they go in the closet. It's wonderful. Well, as always, we want to hear all of your thoughts. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources, so you can learn more about the history and laws of female toplessness, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. 